Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. This week, I'm interviewing Aaron Quicken, founder of KWT, in the latest of our Life Stories podcasts. Aaron started KWT, formerly Quicken, 13 years ago. Before this, he followed the archetypal big agency career path, having worked at MSL, Ketchum, Fleischmann, Konamov and Havas. KWT has a fee income of 12 to $15 million and around 80 employees, including 12 in London. Aaron sold KWT to MDC Partners in 2010 and still owns a minority stake in the firm. MDC Partners also owns Allison Partners, Hunter Public Relations and Sloan. Aaron, welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, having spent 13 years working for some of the world's biggest PR firms, why did you decide to, to launch Quicken? Well, uh, several reasons, really. Um, you know, the first and foremost is, um, you know, you learn a lot at a big agency. Um, you learn what to do, what not to do. But you also learn that mediocrity could hide there. So after many years of learning what to do um, and also spending some time on the corporate side as well at a VC firm just for a few years, um, I and a few others decided to venture out and uh, really focus on the tradecraft. And uh, unfortunately, the trajectory of most folks, like you said, this archetypal type of pathway, you become path dependent. And the more senior you get in a large agency, the further away you get from actually serving clients. Yep. And for those of us who love the tradecraft, we thought we could put together a business model that served clients first um, and also um, a multi-specialist model where, quite frankly, there are no practices. There's just specialty areas and there's one P&L. So you reduce the amount of fiefdoms and you focus on the client. What do you mean by the difference between practice areas and specialisms? Are they, so, where does one not become the other? Uh, it's a good question and, um, you know, oftentimes uh, you have these practice leaders, global, corporate, yeah. um, you know, health, wellness, tech and uh, they have their own P&Ls and all they, all they really care about are, are their own teams and increasingly the world's become a far more interconnected place, yep. not just in a um, media sense, right, not just in terms of own paid, sponsored um, et cetera, but also and earned, of course, um, but also in terms of you know everybody is a technology company, right? The, many companies can claim that they have a wellness benefit. Um, there are a lot of culture stories that are germane to multiple um, companies that are cut across multiple verticals. So it really needs to be more of a collaborative approach. Um, the only way to do that is to have people who have passion for certain areas. Like for us, it's financial services, it's technology, um, it's B2B, it's crisis and issues management. And I can go on and on, media, arts, and but, entertainment. But, but they don't have their own team, so to speak. They're just, they're just part of a team. Right. So the teams, the, actually the junior people are shared. Right. It's a matrixed environment. Um, now, that requires a lot of communication, um, a lot of, um, you know, um, you know, uh, very deliberate organizational structures because, say, an account executive could have three or four different supervisors. They'll have one mentor, one go-to, yep. but they have three or four different supervisors, which requires them to do a fair amount of horse trading with time. But presumably, and I, I don't mean to, we won't dwell on this too long, but yeah. it's quite interesting. Presumably, an account executive or an account director or an associate director or whatever level 
they may well decide at some point, you know what, Aaron, I really like healthcare, I really mm-hmm. like technology. So they become a specialist themselves. Yeah, and uh, if they choose that path, um, yeah. there's ample opportunities for them. Okay. Sometimes, though not very often, they are um, so obsessed about one area over another. We've had some people say, you know what, I just want to work for a financial services boutique. Right. And I say, great. You know, um, okay. that's fine. You got your start here. Um, you know, the greatest mark of success is not what an employee does while they're with you, but what they do actually when they leave. Right. It's hard for people to appreciate that, but that's where we become proud of our former employees, not just our current employees. So, so I mean, practically speaking, if a if a, a relatively junior person comes to you and say, "I want to specialize in one particular vertical," you say. That's great, but it's not quite right for us. Is, is I'll there... say that's great. We'll try to find you those opportunities. We hope we can. But also I'd say to them, and I do, you're young. You should yeah, open right. yourself up to a lot of different experiences yeah. and don't pigeonhole yourself so so early on in your career. Does, does that happen much? I mean, I, um, It can. I think, I think the thing we really focus on, what we found to be important, is identifying where the passions are for people and making sure they feel comfortable raising their hand when they see that we're pitching something or we're going to um, a new market and that they have an opportunity to participate because it's not just experience that we're looking for to serve the client. It's also We're also looking for people with passion who actually care about that sector or that brand. Okay. Now, just fast-forwarding a little bit from the foundation of, of Quicken, now KWT, um, you sold it in 2010? Um, when it only had 12 employees, is that right? Yeah. Uh, or thereabouts. Um, and it now has 80. Yes. So it's grown a lot. Yeah. Um, and I have a, we have a lot of people on the show who, who have sold their business and sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Right. But not that many have sold their business when it only had 12. Um, so it's, it was an early stage sale for you, right? Um, it was. Was that something – so did – I suppose there's a few questions wrapped up in this. Is that something you were – um, planning on happening, um, and do you regret selling? I suppose at such an early point. Uh, no regrets. Um, it was something that we had planned on. Um, I hadn't planned on it so soon necessarily. Yeah. Um, but um, I had the great fortune of meeting MDC partners, and um, after um, multiple rounds of discussions, um, I decided if we were to do this and to be true to ourselves and our clients. We wanted to accomplish a couple of things. One is we really wanted to have a stronger social and digital backbone. And two is uh, we needed some more global connective tissue. And actually there's a third, which is we wanted to become more of an integrated agency. Right. Um, <clears throat> so we uh, specifically asked that we get implanted inside of a creative agency. This agency uh, used to be called KBS. Um, and um, we spent several years within that agency um, we learned everything we could about the creative process that PR agencies, quite frankly, have a blind spot on traditionally. But we also took some of the inauthenticity and the overly commercial kind of narratives that come out of ad agencies and creative agencies. We put that to the side. And I think we came out stronger. And then we spun ourselves back out. Still part of MDC. But it was interesting because the ad agency that we were a part of at the time said, you know, stay in your lane. Just pitch. Pitch, pitch, pitch. And I said, we're going to die. I said, yeah, we could do that, but we'll never grow. We'll just be earned media specialists, whereas we need digital, we need social, we need visual storytelling, content, um, podcasts, things that we're talking about today that have actually comprised now 50% of our business. Right. So that's – so if you hadn't – if um, MDC weren't going to put you into a creative agency, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have said 
you wouldn't have gone ahead with the deal. I, mean, I wouldn't have okay. because it was almost like being inside of a creative university. We oh. learned a lot, but we also knew that our time um, would eventually be up. Is that what I was going to ask? That yeah. was so you were you sort of double agent? Did you did did they know you were you were th- you were think you were probably going to try and spin it out? Obviously, maybe MDC did, but but well, MDC was terrific about yeah. allowing us to do that because uh, they would they don't want any of their agencies to have stifled growth. They have something okay. like fifty two agencies. Um, no, I was always very transparent about it. Um, right. I was hopeful that we wouldn't have to do that, but um, you know, you uh, yeah, and and also uh, look, I, I think there's going to be two types of agencies going forward in the PR world. There'll be publicity shops that just focus on earned media. Um, they can grow at one, two, three percent a year. Um, that's fine. There'll always be room for that. That's not who we are. That'll be part of who we are. But we're really now more of a brand strategy agency that takes the best elements of PR, marketing, social, digital content, synthesizes them into what's best for the client across multiple platforms. Could be paid. Could be owned. Could, could be earned. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that, but there are various different blends in between those two extremes, aren't there? Sure. So there's some fantastic earned media um, shops, if that's the right phrase, mm-hmm. who, you know, okay, maybe slightly depending on how you define publicity, right. um, but they're also doing some some very good digital integrated stuff. They are. How strategic it is, you know, whether, whether they're making those decisions or whether it's more of a, a creative campaign thing, I, I wouldn't know. But, it, right. you know, so it's a, it's a becoming a complicated market, isn't it? It's not yes. quite as, as simplistic as one. There's not just two lanes. There's, right. who knows? Actually, I think the lanes are gone. It's just one yeah. big ocean, one yeah, big pool. Right. And we're all kind of splashing around in it right now. Right. I do believe in a number of years that agencies won't have monikers. They'll just be agency. It won't be PR agency. I need a digital agency. I think the search consultants, um, you're, seeing, this, you're yeah. seeing to see that fissure as well because they're like, well, who do we hire? How do we send this remit out? Sometimes we're competing against analyst firms. Um, you know, we've, we've competed against Forrester before for business. Right. Okay. For content work. So should we just deal with the elephant in the room? Um, sure. MDC Partners, they haven't had a great time of it in recent years. Um, for the re- listeners out there, they are MDC Partners, are KWT's um, parent company. Um, as the founder and now CEO of KWT, has that impacted how you how you run your business much? It hasn't. You know, um, uh, a main a main principle of MDC is uh, independence and autonomy for its agencies and. We've been a high-performing agency since we partnered with MDC in 2010. Um, the best thing they can do f- with us and for us is to leave us alone except for when they have great new business leads. And uh, they're also great support when it comes to back office. Right. Um, and whether it's real estate, financials, you know, HR, um, all the holding companies are having troubles right now. And they're all kind of going through its ups and downs all the time. But it really has no bearing on us. Okay, so they kind of leave you alone. Yeah, presumably as long as as long as the business is being well run and successful. Yeah, no matter what happens with MDC, we'll always be a very strong business because we have complete control over our business. Okay, um, there's a trend, a, a small trend, but an interesting trend nonetheless, which is is one of the reasons I was so keen to get you on, um, of mid-sized US firms launching acquiring in London. Mm-hmm. Um, now most of those deals so far have been pretty micro, but they've been they've been interesting and and uh, nonetheless. Um, so there's there's clearly KWT, there's Allison Partners, there's Hoffman, MWW, mm-hmm. all of various various different sizes. MWW um, clearly a bit, a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, why is London still such an important place for for US firms to have a presence? Would you say? 
it's the one city that we hear when clients say we need um, a global footprint or a cross-border multinational outreach, they always list London first. Okay. It's New York and then it's London. And so that's one very practical reason. The second is, you know, well, we why go. Why is that, by the way? What is this? Um, I think well, that. that cut you off. Well, uh, I think, well, uh, there, first of all, there's been a long kind of affinity and I think a lot of um, um, highly collaborative, successful campaign efforts between London and New York okay. for lots of brands. So there's a track record that. For that sure. Works. For sure. I think our cultures are more similar than they are different. Yeah. I think that London is viewed as a hub not just for Europe but also for Asia in certain instances um, with some of our clients. Um, and uh, I think also London is known to be and still is known to be um, a creative hotspot. There's a lot of um, very good creative energy that comes out of London. And um, I think our brands and our clients recognize that. For us – um, our first foray into London actually was way back in 2007 when we launched Silverjet. I don't know if you remember that. Mm. <clears throat> now defunct airline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the first British you, New York it? London. It was. Right. It was us and Saatchi, uh, MNC Saatchi at the time. And um, that was a fantastic experience. Unfortunately, the whole business model is based on the price of oil, so it didn't end well. Um, but it was a great experience to launch an airline. It's, it's kind of a once-in-a-career type experience, to yeah. be perfectly honest with you. Um, and um, – Shortly thereafter that, our client American Express said, you know, we need, we need you to be in London as strong as you are in New York. Right. So we put a few people here. We co-located with one of um, another MDC agency, which is the benefit of being part of a global network. And we're over on Ebury Street, actually Ian Fleming's uh, historic landmark home, which is right. kind of neat That's cool. in Victoria. And, um, <clears throat> and then shortly after that, I think in 2011, we bought a small agency called Epoch and uh, renamed it Quitkin. Um, and, you know, we had a, a pretty strong offer that was focused mostly on travel, tech, trade, uh, B2B. It's grown quite a bit um, over the years, um, ebbed and flowed, quite frankly. And um, now I'd say we're equal parts consumer as we are B2B. But it's, okay. it's become a very important market. Uh, about 60 percent of our clients in London are shared uh, with either our Toronto or, or our New York office. Okay. Well, just talk us through, with, with hindsight, without, I guess, giving any trade secrets away, mm-hmm. those ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an acquirer of a, a relatively small business, what, what, have, what have you learned from that process? <laughs> well, um, whenever you acquire an agency, make sure that the earnout is longer than uh, – <laughs> if, if an earnout is two years, always add another year. Right. right? That's one thing. Um, the second is is that uh, – and you know, I was sensitive to this as well uh, when I sold my business to MDC. You don't want one client yeah, to be point. more so, than – So you've been both on yeah. both sides. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even before that, when I worked in larger agencies, I was the guy who had to then integrate um, acquisitions right. that others decided to make. Okay. Sometimes with success and sometimes with failure to be well, honest okay. with you. This has rapidly become an Aaron's top tip. So well, <laughs> well, some of it is um, you know, like is not a luxury. You have to like the people. Okay. Fortunately – uh, we really liked, and I still continue to this day, to like the uh, the, the founders of Epoch. Right. Um, but, um, you know, I think I underestimated the amount of time I needed to be here to sprinkle kind of the corporate fairy dust, if you yeah. will. So you're taking what's special from that agency that you bought them for a reason, but you need to blend it nicely, kind of like a baker, uh, with what makes your agency special. At the same time, recognizing that there are nuances, very important differences in each market. And um, I think it takes a long time to blend, and it takes a long and it takes a long time for that yeast to rise, if you will. Right. Just kind of using the terrible analogy, especially on this occasion. Anyway, it's the first time you personally had bought a 
non-US yes. business. So you, you, you've probably been on a bit of a learning curve as well. So, For sure. Yeah. You have foreign you have foreign exchange rates to manage. <laughs> uh, you have tax implications. Yeah. Um, and you also have to make sure for all practical purposes that if one client represents more than 30% of your fee revenue, right. you better diversify as quickly as possible. Gotcha. In hindsight, I don't think we diversified as fast as we probably should have. Um, but now we're far more diverse. Um, and it's a much – I kind of look at agencies like uh, shopping malls. You have a couple anchor tenants. And they're important, but you also have to focus on all those little shops as well in between those anchor tenants in the mall. You just don't want that one anchor tenant to overtake the mall because if that goes out of business, then you're in a crisis mode. Um, And we'll come on to a a bit about your your future plans, um, both on the organic and and acquisition side later on in the show. But um, just going back to the London market – it's it's such a competitive market. I mean, it's it, indeed it, it, it's one of the it's one of the mo- most competitive in the world. I think most people say so. Therefore, it's a tough place to to launch and grow your business, right? So, it's a it's a double edged sword. Is that is that right? I mean, yeah, you've got but, to be here, but it's a tough place to be. Yeah, I don't I don't know if um, it'll ever be our biggest office. No, but I do think it can be a bigger office for us. Yeah. and um, you know, our plan next year is to make an acquisition, maybe two acquisitions. In certain areas, probably uh, consumer or content, maybe even digital, to help grow the office, to give it a little bit more accelerant. Um, it is highly competitive. And the thing that struck me is I feel like there are far more smaller agencies and specialists, one, two-person agencies in this market than even in the U.S. Okay. Um, and um, this is a very price-sensitive market as well. Um, not to say that other markets aren't, but I do feel like the, there's a little bit more emphasis on price, price to value, which can be good, and it can also be a distraction. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I guess it depends on the on the type of work and the diff, and, the, and the market you're in. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, there's there's undoubtedly um, it, at various different elements and uh, various different sectors, I should say, it, it is a, a, a competitive market, and that's. Uh, definitely includes price as well. Right. Now, you were talking a bit a moment ago about earnouts, um, but you're an interesting um, illustration of that. In the eight years on from selling your business, mm-hmm. um, you used to loan 25%? Roughly. Um, yeah. Or thereabouts. Yeah. The most earnouts are long since finished by now. Right. Um, so just talk me through I mean, presumably that, that's an MDC partner's model, <coughs> is it? That, that they it keep is. you in the game. Is that, is that the. You know, um, you know, it partner is part of the MDC brand for a reason. It's not just a word that they threw in there. Right. And the idea behind the model is that um, they buy a smaller percentage early on um, and then together you grow. And they'll okay. buy some more over time. They've bought out some more of me over time. Um, but uh, it's in everybody's best interests um, to have a larger vested stake in the business. Therefore, all of our interests are aligned. Right. right. And um, I think it can be a quite successful model for the right type of entrepreneur. Um, some people, like you said earlier on when we started this this podcast, you said sometimes it works out great. Sometimes it doesn't work out so great. And I think MDC's had its ups and downs as well with different acquisitions over the years. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been eight years in now. Um, I'll be starting my ninth year um, in this partnership model. And uh, you know we've grown tremendously. Um, so I think it's been quite successful for us. But from a personal perspective, why has it worked for you? It obviously, it obviously has. I mean, you're... you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're passionate about KWT, but what right. what is it that um, because in essence what they 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 bought Quitkin at the time right. uh, and then 
took took some of the pain away by managing office space and right. HR and whatever. Yeah. Other. Which is a huge distraction. Exactly. Yeah. Um, as you know, as an entrepreneur yourself. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then you and then you did what? Then they they help you grow by give by investing. Well, I suppose they give you the the investment to potentially go and hire the, the right people. Is that is that how yeah. it works? They, well, they give you uh, you know it helps with cash management, growth right. capital to make acquisitions of both talent as well as other agencies. Okay. You know, we just bought an agency this uh, this fall in uh, Toronto called Homes, not to be confused with Paul Homes, okay. um, Catherine Homes. And um, the other thing they do is, you know, you have the appearance of and the reality of appearing larger than you are. So, yeah. you know, we're now part of a 5,000-person conglomerate, 52 agencies. We get – and I know this is uh, not necessarily relevant in the UK, but in the US it is. We get benefits in healthcare that is harder to get when you're on your own, but you still need to use in order to attract good talent. Um, and the other thing is, is you know, there's a lot of uh, professional development, networking, and resourcing and ideas, as well as uh, global access uh, that we could have done on our own. It would have taken longer, um, yeah. and it would have been more, far more costly. So you you reckon you're bigger now than you would have been had you not sold your business to for, to, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you know, they do have a business development team. Um, we've been the beneficiaries of that. But I've long said that um, you can never rely on uh, you know, a holding company to be your source for new business because you'll be out of business. Yeah, sure. So it's a nice to have. It's kind of gravy, but it's not critical and you okay. can't bet on it. Right. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is you're, you're very passionate about how to run a PR firm um, and, and, and you have quite strong beliefs on, 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 on what, what the what right way to do that is. And one of the things I was really interested about when we are talking um, pre, pre coming on was that you never really want to grow your business between 150 to 200 people. Right. Um, which is not the sort of global de- um, domination plan that, that, that many people people have. Um, and I just wonder why that is. Why, why, why? Well, I, I don't think you need to be huge to be great. Okay. I think, um, you know, there are other ways to, to get at it. And um, our reputation being seen um, as an elite top premium firm is really what's most important to me that does great work for clients. Um, the 150-200 number came from um, – someone once told me and I think there's a little bit of truth to it. Since we met last, I did look it up. Um, the, in the US military, they try to keep what they call companies, really units, to anywhere between 150 and 200 people because after that, um, you, you, lose, you start losing culture. You have to um, create more restrictions and more disciplines. Um, and more procedure that actually stifles creativity and the ability to actually perform. So I kind of took that um, probably a little too literally. But interestingly, (laughs) when you look it up, um, uh, a British anthropologist named Robin Dunbar's, it's called Dunbar's Rule, back in the 90s, did some work on primates and how they interact with each other and the relationship between their brain and how they um, interact with other primates. And he found something quite similar that after about 150 primates, and I think we're quite related, Um, you know, their ability to interact, to perform and to live in a very congenial way and successfully in, pro- uh, in a productive way actually greatly diminished. Right. You said you get, you get, you get tribes within the tribe yes. or whatever else. Exactly. And you get lots yeah. of factions and whatnot. And we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to maintain that one P&L factionless and frictionless um, environment. And that's very important. And that's where you see a lot of agencies kind of stumble. Yeah. I mean, we've had a, a lot of people on who've said that there, there are various different um, – points where you have to reinvent your business 
Um, and definitely that the 300 person mark is is without a doubt one of those um and and it is and and and, and below yeah and and um, and speaking of reinvention you know we changed our name to KWT um because in the same way that we would talk to a client talk a client through this um you know our business has changed over the past 13 or so years and so much of it now is integrated in brand strategy and digital um, but still, Quitkin was associated with PR. So we just reinvented ourselves not long ago. Um, and the other thing we did is we created um, uh, a notion and a principle of purpose that hadn't been in our agency before. So last October, we launched this initiative. You might have actually heard me speak about it in Helsinki at the Eco Conference in 2017. Uh, possibly. Or you I slept so. through it. You slept I, through I, it. I, I don't I, know. I, there, was, <laughs> there was a couple of late nights in Helsinki, yeah. but um, right. expensive late nights. Expensive late I nights. I was definitely there in the room when you were talking. Yeah, reindeer and vodka. <laughs> so, um, you know, 10% of our fee income uh, from clients goes back to their social causes for those clients right. who choose to yeah. do so. And then uh, every employee gets two purpose days off a year. One is a DIY day um, and the other is an agency all-purpose day. And uh, by the end of this year, we would have donated close to $500,000 in fees wow. um, in, against social causes over serving over 100 charities and something we're very proud of. Okay. Now, you suggested, um, I suppose, with a, a, a look at some of your competitors that, that dots on the map um, approach to international PR firms is what well, isn't really necessary anymore um, and is potentially a bit outdated. Uh, just talk me through your alternative model. First of all, and I think most people can appreciate this, managing one office, let alone three offices, is plenty. Yep. I can't imagine managing 30, 40 offices or even having managers of managers managing 30, 40 offices. But indeed, but some big, <clears throat> some big and successful firms have done it for quite a while. Eh? But they have, but you'll notice that these big and successful firms now are collapsing upon themselves <laughs> um, and they're starting to consolidate <laughs> now more than ever before without naming names. Okay. Well, and, some of them are. Yes, some, some of them of the, are. Some of them are still doing pretty well. But, yeah. yeah. And, and I think you'll see more consolidation. I think there's a lot of redundancy. How many people do you really need to service these clients? How different is it, especially in the States, between East Coast and West Coast? Um, the world is increasingly a more global place than ever before. Expertise is more important than specific geography. We can learn nuances when it comes to grassroots organizations and organizing and things like that. So I prefer the hub and spoke system. Just talk me through that. Yeah. So, so New York is the hub for North America, um, especially the states. Um, of course, we have Toronto as well, which focuses mostly on Canada. But you have to remember, Canada is 30 million people. Um, versus the States, which is 300 million people. Wow. Um, and then London really is our hub for Europe, for continental Europe, as well as um, APAC. So we have um, some resources well in Singapore as needed. It's not official, but we but, have that, and that reports in through London. But So they're the hubs. So what, yeah. what are the spokes? Spokes are all of our affiliates and uh, smaller agencies that are independents, and some of them are also not independents that we work with. We'd rather select the best agency in that market to serve the client's needs okay. versus having to have our own agency tethered to that market, hoping that we'll get clients. And, and, you know, having three or four people or even five or six people in multiple markets just doesn't seem logical to me. Okay. So just in, in, in practical reality then, so you have a um, – in the States, you have a, a client and they want to do some work in San Francisco, mm -hmm. Miami, wherever – how does that work? You, your, your guys in New York or Toronto just, just frankly ring up who they need to ring up yeah. in, in those places and, and get on with it. There, well, there's no need to have somebody 
in those those cities. Well, even though we're based in New York, very few of our clients are actually in the New York metropolitan area. Right. Uh, we have a handful of clients that are in the Bay Area as well as San Diego and LA area. Okay. Uh, we have clients all over, um, Chicago, everywhere. Um, but, no, but, multiple but you clients haven't in Tampa. opened up offices in San Francisco, no. which is quite rare, isn't it? I mean, there's, yeah. Well, it's know. very expensive. Talent in San Francisco is very, you know, you're competing with all these startups and, right. you know, promises of wealth creation that you're not going to get working at a PR mm. agency. It's going to be quite different. But uh, the thing to remember is just because a company is based in San Francisco or in Tampa, they don't need PR in the Bay Area per se. They want <laughs> national and global PR. They yeah. want endemic trade media. They want vertical exposure. They want thought leadership. They want content. That has no no state borders or boundaries. So it's really not necessary. Sure. So your, your point basically is you'll spend far less on plane fares than you would on real estate and flying your people in. For sure. And those are reimbursable plane fares. <laughs> exactly. They're right. pass-throughs. Right. Um, and, you know, these um, – Brands that need, you know, kind of state-specific PR, usually it becomes public affairs, not PR. And there are some very fine local agencies in pretty much every market in every state that does that. Right. You know, we'll leave it to their domain. Okay, fine. Um, You mentioned it a bit earlier, but but is KWT looking to to grow by acquisition in London? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, we're looking at, you know, smaller shops, kind of bite-sized shops, anywhere from 12 to 25 people, okay. um, hopefully uh, in this next fiscal year in 2019. And and what sort of verticals would that be? Are you, you Consumer remains of great interest to us. It seems to be that we have a lot of uh, opportunity there, um, as well as um, in, I would say, content slash design um, and digital as well. Uh, in New York, we have a full content design digital team, and we'd like to be able to replicate that in London. Um, because we're one PL, London has very successfully tapped into that New York resource, but there's a certain point at which we really yeah. need it on the ground here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would have thought most the sort of consumer <clears throat> PR shop that you may want to buy is going to have that resource it, w- alongside it, isn't it? So those yeah, and they might not call themselves a PR shop. No, indeed. Right. Yeah. yeah, right. And. That type of acquisition route that you go down, do you get involved with that? Um, We'll be involved in the initial vetting. So we'll screen for chemistry and competency and we'll do a preliminary screen on financials. You know, I've run uh, not just my own agency, but in my past I've run offices for major agencies. So I understand the P&L, which is not quite – quite frankly not hard to to really understand, especially when, you know, 62 to 60 percent – 60 to 62 percent of your – expenses fixed on or variable on staff, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, 7% on real estate, you can go down the list. So um, once it gets to the point of due diligence, MDC has a great resource um, and a team that then can comb through um, uh, ultimately those financials, which then will lead to the structure of a deal in terms. Cool. Yeah. Now, you, you're a keen triathlete, I believe. Yes. Um, Crazy is probably the word. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. It's full on, is it? You, 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 full on. I did my first Ironman, full Ironman in 2012. All right. I thought that would be one and done. Was, just, just so you can enjoy yeah. your, your moment in the sun here, just yeah. talk me through what an Ironman So an Ironman entails a 2.4-mile uh, swim <laughs> uh, followed by a 112-mile bike. Is that, is that breaststroke swim? <laughs> yeah, right. that would be very painful. And Sorry, I'm speaking in miles. And then, um, no, and then a full-on weird. marathon at the end. Okay. And you couldn't do it the other way around because you'd have people drowning. Um, so it's a uh, swim, bike, run. And actually at one point, our conference rooms in New York were named swim, bike, and run. Now they're named after our values. So we became more sensible. 
Iron Man's also a client, uh, which has been a passion oh, of cool. mine. Yeah. Is and, that how you got into it? Uh, no, actually, I got into it, and then I chased them until they finally said fine. Um, <laughs> it took years, but we did it. The, we're going uh, our third year with them. How did you start it? Because it, it, I mean, how did you get into it? All? So uh, in 2008, after my uh, dad passed away from congestive heart failure, I'd always been somewhat fit. Um, I'm a swimmer by by choice as well as um, just that was my sport, that and cross-country running when I was a kid. Um, someone said to me, you know, you should try to learn how to bike. I knew how to bike but not competitively, which is quite yeah. different. And so I bought a real bike, um, did a couple of sprint distances, like shorter triathlons, um, and then went into this lottery for the one and only New York Ironman. Um, they, was only, they canceled it after the first year. And um, – what was that? Just... Uh, sadly, someone did pass away in the oh. swim. Um, actually, British National passed away in the swim. Um, and also, just there's so many mis- municipalities involved between New York and New Jersey. Logistically, it was very trying. Um, I successfully completed that in about a little over 13 hours. Um, it's a day. Wow. It's a day. Swimming in the Hudson River, which was pretty interesting. I still have a glow about me, I think, because of that swim. And um, <laughs> I got hooked. You know, it becomes a lifestyle. Swim? How long is the swim last? 2.4 miles. And how, how long does that take? Oh, how long? well, I had a current with me, so that was just 45 minutes. Um, <clears throat> when I did Lake Placid in 2014, I swam it in about an hour. Oh, uh, and I had just done Maryland about um, six weeks ago, and um, I swam it in an hour and five minutes. I was pretty proud of that. Swimming is my strongest. Is it? Yeah. And then once I get on the bike, people start passing me. I've gotten stronger, but people start passing me. Um, and the run is more like a run walk for amateur. Exactly. We call ourselves age grouper athletes. But the thing about triathlon is it gives you, you know, it takes up a lot. But when I'm peak training, you're talking about 18 hours a week, right before, you know, two two months before the race. Wow. You're out in the That's bike for seven hours on a Saturday. You're yeah. running for three, four hours the next day. And then you're combining the two. We call it a brick, a bike run. And I think the point is that Ever since I've taken up triathlon and endurance sports, it's given me even greater discipline and focus that parlays into the business. Um, The less time you have, the more time you have, you know. And um, I think it's true for lots of things. And um, it just gives you um, something else to focus on. It also gives you a lot of alone time, which I know sounds sociopathic, um, but it actually gives you time to think. My best thinking is done when I'm swimming. I have no earbuds in. Nobody's bothering me. You get the occasional rogue toenail from a swimmer in the lane next to you that you have to worry about. And that's it, right? And you have to just stay away from those claws. But nice. but honestly, um, that's where I think. And I actually keep a notepad in the locker room at the YMCA. Yeah. And it's kind of like when you wake up after you've had a dream and you want to write down notes. And I write down notes and ideas and thoughts. It could be the mundane to I forgot to do this or send mm-hmm. this email to like larger concepts and thoughts that I wouldn't have gotten doing other things. And when I run long, I listen to podcasts. Yeah. Maybe I'll start listening to this podcast yeah. when I when I run long. I, I had assumed you'd listen to the full back catalog. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's, I'll have to download them. I mean, I'll credit you to you for that because I, I suspect you're quite a busy man. Um, you got a youngish family, as I remember. Uh, yeah, not not anymore. Okay. Seventeen and fourteen. Okay, the but dogs give me more attention when I come home than my kids these days. But put it this way: from when you started triathlon, you oh, had. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, if we all sit there, and go, oh, I'm not too busy, I haven't got time. But right. frankly, you found the time. So you take it away from sleep. You know, I'm up at four thirty most mornings. Wow, I get workouts in well before I start the day. But also, I go to bed. You know, between you know, you nine and nine twenty p.m. <laughs> So um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm in bed pretty early. Right. I'm getting so, them, pr- practicing for the home one day. So you know? TV, TV just doesn't really happen. 
TV happens when I'm on my trainer in the basement on my oh bike. Oh, my goodness me. So I've watched pretty much every Netflix and Amazon show, movies. I've watched them all. People are like, how do you consume all that? Because I'm on the bike. What else am I going to be doing? Wow. You know? You are one of the, you know, those sort of day-in-the-life features that used to happen where everyone sort of used to say 4.30 on the bike, mm-hmm. um, 6.30, client call. Right. Some of, and it's these sort of ridiculous days that – I always assume we're complete make believe, but yeah. but maybe yours yours is that day that it's, uh, it, it, is it yeah. pretty full I, uh, on. I'm I'm very rarely still um, or idle. <laughs> I'm constantly moving, and um, I don't require a lot of sleep either, which is totally fine. That's a, I mean, that's a big advantage. I mean, if I don't yeah. get my full eight hours, people know about it, you know. But so, um, eight's a lot. I'm, I'm I average probably between five and six. Well, I know that for a fact because I have my Garmin watch on, so I, I know my sleep habits. That's unfair, isn't it? I mean, you've got, you got two hours on me every day. Yeah, but you have a full head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> so. Gray hair. Yeah, yeah. But, or graying hair, potentially. Right. Now, funny, um, you cheered me up when we, when we spoke earlier because you said I, don't, I shouldn't worry about Brexit. So, go on, please put my mind at, at rest. GDPR, Brexit, Facebook, um, you know, um, crazy leaders running the world – there's always going to be something, and I focus on things I can control, not things I can't control. The best way to hedge about hedge on those things is to diversify your business and to be a multi-specialist agency and um, working in multinationals across borders because it spreads your risk. Um, so I'm not worried until I need cause to be worried. But, you know, we, we backstop each other. Our, our three offices, with New York being the main office, we backstop each other. You know, we... Um, when one gets sick, um, you know, we, we kind of lift them up and make sure that we are healthy together. So I'm not too concerned. And I'm also not an expert on Brexit. <laughs> and I don't think anybody is, quite frankly. No, Nobody really changes. knows what's going to happen. Yeah, that's true. Um, but that's an interesting point, actually, isn't it? You, by having multiple offices, you spread that risk a little bit. Um, For sure. Which is, and I, I was having this conversation just earlier today, actually, with someone who's an independent, a really good, you know, big independent tech firm in London um, and those sorts of firms tend to go up and down a bit in revenue Yeah. Um, but if you move, if you have different well you've illustrated actually twice over you've illustrated it in the different sectors that KWT work in right. and the different geographies you've got so right. you, you spread your risk basically I suppose. That's the idea right. that is the idea Aaron, thank you very much indeed. Thank you Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast produced in association with the Marketeers Network If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.